just uh, some brief opening devotions. Uh, but uh, before that, um, can I? Um, there is uh, no charge for this afternoon. Um, but if you uh, feel that you want to give a donation, any donations will be given to Emmaus at Work, which is the charity that uh, Janet has nominated for today um, and is particularly close to her heart. So there is a box at the back um, in the, and one in the porch. Thank you. I also at this stage want to say thank you to Lynn who's done all of the arrangements for today. Um, a big thank you to you. I'm reading hymn 162. The prophet's voice comes down the years to teach and to inspire. To show the nature of our God in words and deeds of fire. Not to disclose some rigid plan that God has set in stone, but to renew the promises the saints have always known. The prophet's voice speaks of the past, the actions that reveal the way God used the people then his broken word to heal and then translates the things gone by in ways that we find new so we can judge the world we know by standards ever true the prophet's voice holds up a glass in which to see our day events which span the globe around the things we do and say it calls us to repent and turn from things that life tears tear down to choose the path that Jesus chose and share his work and crown let us pray Lord our God eternal word what are you saying to us now? We treasure your words as we read them in the Bible. We treasure your sacrifice for us on the cross. We treasure the diversity of your church and its people. Will we treasure what you have to say to us today? May we be open to you challenging us day by day. May we be open to you shaping us moment by moment. May we be open to you leading us step by step. May we be open to you speaking to us this afternoon Lord our God eternal word what are you saying to us now we thank you 
for the wisdom of scholars and especially this afternoon we thank you for Janet. We thank you for the wonderful world in which you place us. May we learn to see it as you see it. We thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word to us, written and spoken and in our hearts and minds. We ask your spirit to be alive and at work within us that we may hear what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Janet. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, everyone. And thank you for coming. There's tennis, there's football, there's sunny weather, there's all sorts of things that I'm delighted that you have come <laughs> to be here because otherwise it would have been a very funny afternoon for me. <laughs> but it's lovely to be with you again. And I hope that we're going to spend the next roughly three hours having fun together and learning together and thinking more about God and God's purposes for us. And I hope you've all got a Bible. Yeah? Because what we're going to think about is the Old Testament prophets. Not going to try and do all of them, you'll be pleased to know, otherwise we'll be here till Christmas. We might be here till Christmas anyway. The plan is that we stop for a cup of tea or a glass of orange juice or something like that. What should we say? Half three? Something like that? Does that sound about right? And I have brought from my garden, some courgettes and a couple of cucumbers that I got too many and they're downstairs and anybody can have one if they want one. <laughs> they're on the piano at the moment. And uh, thank you for any donations that might go to the um, Amaz community. It works with homeless people and uh, it's been a charity that I've been committed to for many, many years. But we've got to think about profits particularly the Old Testament prophets, but we're also going to think about whether they've got relevance for us today. So what is a prophet? And if you were here last year, you'll know that my style is interactive. We talk, we all talk. And there's no right answers or wrong answers, so say anything you want to say, and if you won't shut up about something, I'll shut you up. <laughs> <laughs> if you're being unhelpful to the rest of the group, if that sounds okay. Okay with that? How many of you were here last year? Oh, a goodly number, so you know the way I do things. Can you come back for more? Wow! <laughs> so, so what is a prophet? Not who or you know, name them, but what is a prophet? What do you understand a prophet to be? Messenger from God. A messenger from God. So does that mean anybody was a prophet? Can be. Hmm? Can be. Can be. 
officially, but were they? Was that what the Old Testament prophets were? Was it just anybody? Chosen. 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 It, there was an understanding that these were people who were called, chosen, commissioned in, in some way. So a messenger from God. To who? to authority and power. To authority and power. In particular times and circumstances. In particular times and circumstances. Now all of that is right to, to an extent. To the nation of Israel specifically. In the Old Testament it was specifically to God's people. The, the messengers came to God's people because when you're talking in a very nationalistic way, which in the Old Testament times you, you were, God's messenger came to God's people, because certainly until you got to the time of Babylonian exile, you thought God was only concerned with your people anyway, because the other gods were concerned with other peoples. So if God said something about another nation, it was actually said to the people of Israel, It might have implications for somebody else, but the message was to the people of Israel. You don't get God sending a messenger to Babylon or to Egypt. The message comes to God's people about the other nations occasionally. Why did God send messengers? Because they were in trouble. Because they were in trouble. What kind of trouble? What do you mean by they were in trouble? They were. Um, they'd gone wrong in their practice of the. Right. So, so they were doing things wrong. Is what you've got in mind there? Yes. They got themselves in a mess. Mm -hmm. That kind of. Trouble is what you're talking about. Possibly. They could have been badly overrun by a superior force from another regime. So, what would God send a messenger to them for? So so that would be a message of reassurance and yes. encouragement, whereas what you're talking about is a you've been a bad boy, take a slap on the wrist type of thing. Um, so you might get messages of let's call it judgment, you might get messages of encouragement. speak a different truth. Um, temptation to copy other nations, 
the Lord is your God, sort of thing. Uh, a different truth to respond to. Okay, so to challenge them yeah. about going away of the world and yeah. falling in with um, the culture that they find themselves in, that, that kind of thing. So we, we're starting to touch on the range of possibilities of what a prophetic message might be about, but why does God send a message? We've talked about circumstances in which God might send a message. Why would God send a message? To reveal his will and to reveal his will and purpose. To reveal his will and purpose. To call his people back to true worship of him. To call people back to worship of him. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, but push a bit harder. Why send a message? Well, they're not listening directly, so get somebody to give Okay, them. to mediate God to the people, yeah. Why? Because God loves them. God loves them, yeah. But why send a message? What do you want them to do when they've heard the message? To make them Now, now obviously in error, people are in error and he needs them to repent. You're, you're sort of right, but not totally right, because if it's a message of encouragement, they're not necessarily in error. Move people on. To move people on. To take action. To take, to take action, yeah. To elicit a response of some kind. The point of a prophetic messenger is to bring a word from God to people, and it is to God's people, to elicit a response from God's people in a particular set of circumstances. So something is going on, and it might be a problem, it might be an opportunity, whatever it might be, the prophetic word comes to God's people. Not for God's people to say, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? And carry on sweetly with whatever they're doing. <laughs> but to actually say, Oh, what does that mean I, we, ought to do? Is it encouraging us to carry on with what we're doing now, but with a bit more enthusiasm? Is it encouraging us to tone down what we're doing now? Or is it encouraging us to actually change direction completely and realise we've lost the plot. And what we've been doing is going off in a wrong direction and not God's way. So I wanted to start there because sometimes 
we can get the wrong idea and we can think that the prophet is all about predicting the future. And whilst they might have some slight future perspective, that's not what it's all about. It's about the immediacy of the context of the people being addressed. But also to get us away from thinking that God sends a prophet to condemn the big wide world out there. To tell the world that it's not doing the right thing. The messenger actually comes to God's people. That they might behave differently for their own sake and for the sake of the world. If the world needs transforming, it's God's people that are called to do what's necessary to bring about the transformation. The messenger doesn't go to them. And we can be very much in danger of taking some of the prophetic words and throwing them out as if they're criticisms of government or the financial leaders of the world or something or other. That's not who they're addressed at. They're addressed at us within the community of faith to make a difference to the institutions of the world in, in which we live. So that's the first things to think about. Okay, we'll get to looking at the Bible in a minute. Lots of things in the Bible, don't worry. So, how did you know who was a prophet and who wasn't? Outspoken. They were quite outspoken, yeah. Lots of people are outspoken, are they all prophets? But was it because what the prophet said had to adhere to scripture, specifically the commandments and such like? Or was it be a false prophet? If we've got any scripture before we have any prophets, that might work, but we didn't. You get prophets first and scripture comes later. <laughs> Probably in commandments. You're other than the, if you like the basics of the Ten Commandments that are so generic that they yeah, I mean it'll have only one God, that very Israelite, but the other ones of you, know, you shan't kill and you shan't bear false witness, they're common to all the ancient world. I mean they're normal standards of humanity and um, so that one doesn't work the tantalizing text i think somewhere that says you know if the prophet is true or false whether it comes true or not <laughs> and we'll come to that one john and you're absolutely right we will look at that but let's look at that now it's in deuteronomy is it yeah and it's deuteronomy says knowingly that I always get myself out to Deuteronomy 18. Yeah. 
Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 onwards. And if we're in Deuteronomy and somebody is speaking on behalf of God, who's speaking in Deuteronomy? First five books of the Bible are the books of Moses. It's purporting to be Moses who is speaking. So verse 15, chapter 18, says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So that's like Moses. And you will heed such a prophet. If you look at verse 18, I'll raise up for them a prophet. This is God talking to Moses, like you from among their people. I'll put my words in the mouth of the prophet who will speak them in God's name. Okay, you with me? But any prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, so this suggests that there are other people claiming to be prophets, they'll die. It's always black and white in Deuteronomy. And look at verse 21. How can we recognise it actually is not a word that the Lord has spoken, but a word that the Lord has not spoken. In other words, how can we recognise the false prophet? And what does it say in verse 22? If it doesn't happen as he says, then he's wrong. If it doesn't happen, then he's wrong. Not true prophet. But is that terribly helpful at the time when you've got two people standing there talking to you? I nearly said that earlier, but no, that doesn't answer the question you're asking. The, the problem is, it's only with hindsight that you can tell a true prophet from a false prophet. in the Old Testament context. Is there a question bubbling up from you, Anne? Um, no, it's a comment because we've been doing Jonah in June and that feeds into that and Jonah's anxiety about the Ninevites repenting and therefore God not overthrowing them immediately. Going into Jonah is a very interesting issue of whether that to be a prophecy at all. But um, uh, yeah, uh, if it doesn't happen, if you say God's going to zap somebody or other and it doesn't happen, does that make you a false prophet? Yeah. 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 And where does repentance come into all of this? And and you know there are. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of questions going on in Jonah as to whether he's actually a parody of the prophet rather than a prophet. Because uh, everything he does is what the true prophet didn't ought to do. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. 
uh, he's presented in Kings as a true prophet, but then everything he does is in the book of Jonah is what a true prophet didn't ought to do. Um, and, and it raises the question, where does the message come from? But what we've looked at by seeing Deuteronomy is to recognise that distinguishing a true prophet from a false prophet is not obviously an easy thing to do. Because you can have people standing up and declaring that they've got a message from God, and it's not from God at all, it's from a false God in Old Testament terms, or from, in the modern world, from their own ego, their own self-interest, the interest of a section of society, but it is not from God. How do we know? Because you didn't go around with a badge, a badge of office, that enabled it to be clear. And in fact, There were some people who, if you like, were professional prophets. I'm going out of biblical context, but you've probably heard of the Oracle of Delphi in Greek tradition, where you go and consult the Oracle. That's like going and consulting a prophet. And if you're going to go and pay, at an oracle or go and pay a prophet, like going to a fortune teller, as many people do, to find out what's going to happen, what kind of a message are they likely to give you? One that you will like. Hmm? One that you will like. like. Otherwise, they're not going to get any custom, are they? So there's that idea of people setting themselves up at particular sanctuaries or particular places and claiming to be in touch with God, which is where you verge on some of the mystical processes and some of the arts that are condemned biblically in terms of how do you discern God's purposes. So, how do you tell a prophet, a true one, from a false one? For us nowadays, as we look at the pages of scripture, we can see which of the messages were actually fulfilled. Yeah? And therefore, we can say, oh, that one looks true, and that one looks false. But even that's not as simple as all that. Because what does God send messengers for? What did we say? Get a response. To get a response. 
So if God comes and says, you're doing things wrongly, your behaviour isn't what it ought to be, and the consequence of that is going to be, you'll get kicked out of your land. If you take notice of that prophet, and change your ways, is that a true prophet or a false prophet?
is validated by other things. So sometimes, I mean, Deuteronomy suggests that God and Moses were having a nice conversation up the mountainside. I genuinely do not think that should be taken as a literal account of anything that happened. It is an attempt to describe those inner problems of how does one recognise a relationship with God and how does one communicate a relationship with God to other people. I mean, I bet if I went around this room and asked any one of you to describe your relationship with Christ and how you actually <coughs> know it, discern it, that invitation to discipleship, and you would struggle to find words that made sense. And in the Old Testament times, you've not got all the psychological language that we've got nowadays that you can call upon. So occasionally the Bible will talk about God calling someone by name. God called Moses out of a bush, supposedly. This disembodied voice, Moses, Moses. But what does the Bible say about how people received their call? Some of the Old Testament prophets more or less said, you cannot be serious. I mean, Amos and such didn't want to be called. They weren't looking out to set themselves up in any way. So what you're pointing out there, John, is that this was not a personal desire. This is something that they're doing reluctantly. It's a bit shocking, really. Yeah. It, that it, it. So they're making a point of saying it's not what I want to do. It's something that I can't avoid. I think it's there God's, put, yeah. God's put the finger on it, if you like. Now, that, that, that's part of it, and you get that with Moses. Yeah, I'm too hard to speak. Yeah, I, I'm unable to do things. But think about how the prophets of the Old Testament talk about receiving their call. Isaiah. And it's Isaiah chapter 6. Might help you. That was a, a vision, wasn't it? It's a vision. A vision of what? A vision of the greatness of God. A vision of the greatness of God. Yes. That's a good way of describing it. What does it say in chapter 6? Where was the prophet? It looks to be in the holy place, in, in, in the temple. 
Agosto e sai em sol. The Lord sitting on a throne. So it's a vision of God, but it immediately becomes clear that it's actually only the hem of the garment of the Lord that is filling the whole temple. So you immediately know that we're into language that just doesn't work properly here. But it's some kind of vision of the grandeur, the splendor, the holiness of God, and it's in the context of a holy place. A place where you go. Why would you go to the temple? To seek God. To worship God. To worship God. So you've gone wanting to encounter God, and it's in that openness of wanting to discover more of God that something gives you an overwhelming sense of the presence of God. What does that vision in Isaiah imply about the difference between God and Isaiah? I think it says that it says that King Isaiah, the king had died. There was a vacancy in the monarchy, and Isaiah sort of said, "No, no, there isn't." Yeah, sort of, but <coughs> a, a little bit more. Just simply, not the context or, or, or the political situation. But what we get told in chapter six, what do we get told about God, and what do we get told about Isaiah? The contrast. Contrast. In what way? Isaiah feels unworthy. Isaiah feels unworthy. The contrast between humanity and divinity. There's this holiness, this splendour, which is ever so big and surrounded by mystical attendants and all kinds of things that just say power, authority, sovereignty, <coughs> majesty of God and unworthiness, littleness, insignificance of the human being. A real contrast. Wow, God, uh, me, I will crawl up because I'm not worth anything. So there's no sense of aggrandizement. God's called me to be a prophet. <coughs> it's this What we're getting here is the idea of God overwhelming the individual with the sense of God's majesty and holiness and identifying an individual who feels totally unworthy to be in that presence of God or to be used by God. So let's hold that one in mind, because that gives us some sense of how would we tell a true prophet from a false prophet. There's going to be something about personal demeanor. Humility. Humility and relationship with God 
If it's all about I, 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 then that's probably not a prophet. I think this, I think that, I've had a word. That's probably not a divine prophet. Find the opening chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah circulating the 
one that's ended up in Greek and the one that's ended up in the Hebrew that's come on its Protestant versions of our Bibles. And the one we've got calls Jeremiah a prophet lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of times, whereas the Greek version doesn't. And the way that Jeremiah is presented in our version models Moses. I will raise up from you, in Deuteronomy, someone like me to be a prophet. And Jeremiah is presented as that true prophet and it's part of a theological debate after the Babylonian exile about the problem with prophecy. Because we don't know until afterwards. We didn't heed the prophets before the exile and look what's happened. Does it work? How does it work? What do we do? How does God communicate with us? What are we getting wrong? We're relying on prophets, but we're picking and choosing which ones we want to listen to, and we're all going to go for the wrong ones. <laughs> because what you get in Jeremiah is, if you take the dates that we've got, lo and behold, he's active for how long did Moses wander in the wilderness, proclaiming things to people? 40 years, and you get the 40 year span. There's lots of things that pick up. And in Jeremiah, you get every possible way that you might receive a message, and every possible way that a prophet might communicate a message. All the other prophetic books, the prophets have a style, that they either have visions, and then repeat what they've got to do. Or they go into ecstatic trances or something or other. Or they say they've heard a voice or something or other. And some of the prophets speak what they're going to say. Some of them act it out. But Jeremiah does absolutely everything. And there's two or three places where you've got Somebody saying in the name of the Lord, everything's going to be all right, we've got the temple, it will all be fine. And Jeremiah is saying, don't start saying the temple, the temple, the temple, as though it's a talisman and that will keep you safe, because it won't. And who do the people believe? Not Jeremiah, the one who says, got the temple, it's all going to be all right, what happens to the temple? It falls. Um, the people going after the false prophet who appears to be behaving in exactly the same way as Jeremiah the true prophet. And I doubt if there's anybody here, well there might be one, but hardly anybody who's tried reading Jeremiah from beginning to end. Has anybody read Jeremiah from beginning to end? You find if you do try and read it from beginning to end, you know, oh, I thought that king was dead. Yeah, it doesn't work chronologically. The material has been collected very much thematically, and you jump backwards and forwards, and 
you get things in poetry and then you get things in prose. So you get the same idea more than once in different parts of the book. And it, it, it's clear that it's to be read in a, not in any sense that this is a biographical book. This is something that is doing something different and you read chunks of it to get a sense of what we're exploring here. So, let's look again at what it says about the <coughs> Mm -hmm. as if to say that's what I think of what you're saying mm -hmm. 
And what does verse 10 say the job of this prophet is to be? To be unpopular, yeah. To remake. To remake. And to remake what you have to do. Tear down, destroy what exists. You've got to get rid of the stuff that is the problem before you build. It appears to be destructive before it is constructive. And the prophet here is given the whole task. Now, what's going on in verses 11, 12, 13. Basically, is going on with Potter and the clay one. 
if the uh, if the vessel goes rogue, the the pot that splashes up the clay starts again. Right. So, uh, and it's the question of which is more important, the potter or the clay? Who's in charge? And it's, it's the potter and, and who's the potter in the, the way that the prophet interprets it? God. And who's the clay? And can the, can the clay say to the potter, make this out of me? It's up to the potter to decide what it is. So we get that vision of a potter and clay in several different places, used in slightly different ways. Either of it being, it's gone wrong, so let's smash that and squash it down and start again. And that it's God who will decide what we're going to be, not, not you. And so what the prophet is doing is going and looking at something and seeing that that has got a message for the community that is being addressed. And you can turn to the people and say, look at what's going on over there. And it, it's like Jesus with his parables. It's think that through and see what the implications of that are. And something visual is actually quite helpful at expressing the message. So prophets are called, the Bible either says by some kind of auditory experience of some inner sense of call, or by some visionary experience. Go to Ezekiel. And that's the next big prophet, prophetic book again after Jeremiah. You get lamentations and then you get Ezekiel. Chapter 1, verse 4. I'm just looking at the next few verses. What kind of things happening here? Conceptualise that. 
it's gone outside. The words make sense, but the concept has gone into another realm of a, a possibility. And this is an alternative way of doing that majesty and mystery and the sovereignty of God and the, the power of God over all creation and God not being limited by anything within human experience. And when you get to the end of chapter 1 of Ezekiel, we get a reference to the appearance of the splendor. And then look what the last verse says after that. It was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So you are four stages removed from actually being able to see the Lord. God's glory, God's splendor is such that we can get nowhere near finding the language to describe it. And in that almost ecstatic visionary experience, what does Ezekiel hear? A voice speaking to him and said what to him? Stand up on your feet. What's he called? Mortal. Mortal. You might have son of man, which would be Ben-Adam, which is emphasising the humanity, the mortality of the character. And Ezekiel is often referred to in those terms. And again, it's this business of complete and utter contrast. Yeah. Some of the earth is that you are very limited and mortal as against God, who isn't. And he's being sent something that your life is going to be committed in that way. 
and you've got your Ezekiel that circumstances change and everything you've been prepared for in the service of God suddenly that's not going to be possible because what have you not got out in exile? Temple. A temple. So everything that you used to do you can no longer do but God has got a new role for this priest to be a prophet. Yeah, but how significant is it that um, you said before about God's being essentially embodied in nationality and being therefore of locality. How significant is it that the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel uh, in the land of the Chaldeans and the hand of the Lord of God there? What, what is going on? What is going on is that we have now got to Babylonian exile and this is the period of time when the recognition comes that God is not nationalistic. And it's actually the second part of the book of Isaiah, which is just a little bit later than Ezekiel, when you get the full sense of monotheism that there is only one God and God is God over the whole universe, fully expressed, but you're getting the beginnings of it here, the recognition that the stories of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob what did they understand about God? Where was God? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, and such like. With them. With them. In the land, the land where they lived. Well, eventually they lived in the land, but what do we know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What would they often do? Wandered. They, wandering Aramaean was my father. So where was God? With them. The emphasis was that God was a God of the people who travelled with the people. Then when they settled in the land and they built the temple, there was this sense of God's made God's dwelling place in the temple, as though this is permanent and forever and can't be other than that. When they go into exile, they begin to pick up again that perhaps God can go with God's people and then suddenly they realise that no actually God is everywhere and it's us who are limited not God and that we put God in boxes and contain God when God has wanted us to realise that God will not be contained in the boxes and that while God has been doing particular things with Israel and we've just been focused on Israel, doesn't mean to say that God's not been doing something on the North Pole when we knew the North Pole existed. Mm -hmm. You know, we're very quick to say, because God's chosen to do something special with us, therefore God is ignoring everybody else and wants nothing to do with them. There's no logic to that whatsoever. If God chooses less, to work with Les in a particular way, 
in a special way, it doesn't mean that God hasn't chosen every one of us to work with us in a special way. But we can begin to think that either individually or as a group, we're specially favoured by God, with negative views on those who don't enjoy the status that we enjoy. And that's the human perspective on things, not God's perspective on things. Right. Visions, auditory experiences, <coughs> interpret experiences, ordinary things, and How do prophets attempt to communicate God's message to God's people? In kind of parables or using familiar things. Sometimes, so picking up on these visionary experiences, using those as a way of doing it. So that would be, technically that would be a vision report. So you verbalise what you have seen to help other people see it and get an explanation of it. How else? What do you find again and again and again in the prophetic books? This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thus said the Lord. And so what does it either, what does it introduce or what does it come after? A speech proclamation. A speech, the proclamation, an oracle is what we actually call that technically. An oracle from God. So it's I have heard this message and the idea is I am verbatim communicating that message. So that's oral. And in a sense, that's, that's like your person on the street corner or your soapbox standing in your pulpit. It's it, the whatever, it's that one who says, this is a message from God that I've received from God that I am verbally giving to you. How else do prophets picture images of actions like Jeremiah did when with his wife? To carry a message through those actions. Hosea. I think you mean Hosea. Hosea, sorry, yes. Um, so it's not exactly picture images. The, the Hosea one is the embodiment of it. it. It's the, according to the text, it's the living it out that you actually. Uh, and according to Hosea, you know, he takes the wife and he names his children and all that kind of thing over 
over an extended period of time. Now, it might have been a dramatic presentation, rather, or it could be a long drawn-out doing something. But it's enactment, or actually embodying it. And you get that, and I do think that in some instances, this prophetic enactment, the prophetic drama, the prophetic symbolism, sometimes it might have been a real life something or other they did. Now you could imagine somebody smashing a pot I'm talking about that. But Jeremiah supposedly takes a loincloth and goes all the way to the Euphrates River and buries it, and then goes back after a number of years and fetches it out again, and lo and behold, it's still clean. Now, you can't actually imagine any audience that would have followed that action over that period of time. You know, to literally go that sort of distance and that sort of time, who actually saw the beginning, the middle, the end, and uh, has gone with it? Whereas if you imagine performing a drama in the town square, you can see how you can, you know, the sort of the signs two years later. Yes. <laughs> that you go and do it. So you are visually enacting it. So some things might be literally enacted over a period of time. It's rather like Ezekiel, we're told, is to lie on his right side and make sure whether you're facing Jerusalem or facing away from Jerusalem and such like for a certain number of days, and then turn over and lie on the other side. And it's a significant number of days well, you tell me who's going to bother counting and, and all that kind of thing. It, it doesn't ring true that that would have an impact on people. Because nobody's going to hang around and say, well, that's that silly idiot again. You, you know, they're not going to be taking notice of precisely what's happening. So these are probably an account of a drama that does but it, it is done in that way of demonstrate it, present it in some kind of a way, story form, that people can understand what the implications are. Anything else? about how they communicate things. He looks, looks at what's happening politically and interprets it. Right, so that again is interpretation, reading the signs of the times. And you do get that quite a bit. Um, and they often use the analogy of, you know, you know how to interpret the red sky at night, that kind of thing from the world of agriculture. 
look at the signs of what's going on politically and interpret what's going on. So that's another way of actually communicating. But everything we've said so far involves the prophet doing what to actually get the message across? Speaking. Speaking. So who's going to be listening? very, very 
late post-exile synagogue idea and not the time of the prophets. And if you went to the temple when they've all gone for some pilgrimage festival, they've gone for a very particular purpose and to actually get a hearing there isn't going to be the easiest thing to do, but I'm not saying that they didn't do it, that you might have done that. But to go to the sanctuaries of varying kinds where, particularly if you want to critique what they're doing in terms of their relationship with God, the various smaller sanctuaries in differing places, if you want to go and say this isn't true worship, they'd be the places that you'd go to. And who would you be basically giving the message to? The faithful. Local people, of course. Who would be functioning at these sanctuaries? Priests. Priests, Levites. You'd be giving the message to those who've got some kind of official position within the community, a responsibility to help people live in accordance with the faith. The ones who thought they were the most devout are the ones that you're actually going to be giving your message to. Are they going to be the ones who are going to be most receptive? Probably not. Probably not, no. Because they're going to think we're doing it all right. What right have you got to come and start telling us what, what we're doing? But that's what they would have done. And one of the difficulties that we have when we try and understand what's going on with the Old Testament prophets is what have we got that enables us to know something about the Old Testament prophets? The Bible that is made up of lots of books Texts. We've got lots of texts. Now I've just told you that the book of Jeremiah presents him as being active for how many years? Forty. I know you're not going to read Jeremiah beginning to end, and I don't recommend it, but how long do you reckon it would take you? Two and a half hours. Two and a half, three hours, yeah. Mm -hmm. A 40 years worth of stuff. Even a prophet like Amos, who might have functioned over Festival of Tabernacles, six, seven days at most, it's clear that he was talking to different people in different places. And so individuals are only going to hear 
one oracle or one vision report. We have got the texts that give us a collected body of stuff associated with a prophet. And none of it, and I think I can say this without any fear of it not being like, none of it is presented to us as though this is a chronological account that gives you the whole picture. It's a selective gathering of stuff that has been put together in some kind of a thematic way that you can see this is what Prophet X has got to say about the worship life of the community. This is what the prophet had got to say about the political situation. This is what a prophet had got to say about relationship with the nations, whatever it, it might be. And the original prophets were speaking stuff and the verbal prophecy works in a different way to the collected prophetic material that is then written down and the prophetic book has a different message collectively, to the individual bits. And what we've got is the collected stuff and the marvellous thing to recognise is that the process of turning oral prophecy into what becomes collected as scripture, which we believe happens under the guidance of the Spirit, is because there was a recognition that what was proclaimed in one set of circumstances to one group of people has got a timeless significance and relevance for another group of people in another context. And whilst it is really, really helpful to understand what the prophets were talking about in the first place, because then that enriches our understanding of what they were talking about and why they were talking, we misunderstand it if we leave it like that. 
and say, Jeremiah was having a go at the community in Judah, warning them about Babylonian exile, and weren't they silly that they didn't take notice of him? Right, we understand Jeremiah, we can read that now. The only reason it's been collected as scripture is because what that was all about, God's people down through the ages, I thought, this is something that still speaks to God's people in different situations at different times. And we need to ensure that they have opportunities to engage with it and reflect on it as the word of God that calls for a response. A response now. And now is the time to go and have a cup of tea or a glass of or whatever. And we'll come back to this after we've had a break and check the lecture. Is that okay?